to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it for thy courts above. This is probably familiar to you. It's a verse from Robert Robinson's wonderful hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. I share it with you this morning because it is a prayer for endurance. It is a prayer that recognizes that our actual ability to have faith each morning in the face of calamities, great and small, earthquakes to toothaches, it recognizes that our perseverance in faith in all circumstances is a gift from God. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That is our condition. But by God's grace, here we are. Here you are. Here I am. This prayer is relevant this morning because after Jesus gives a rather terrifying picture of the future of his little band of disciples, they'll be arrested, persecuted, handed over to prison, betrayed by family, and even put to death. He says that by their endurance, they will save their souls. And that statement was not just an encouragement. It was, in fact, Jesus' own prayer for them. We hear an extended version of it in the Gospel of John, when Jesus is not only praying for those disciples right in front of him, he's actually praying for all those that will follow, which includes you and me. He says, you will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair of your head will perish. Well, how can this be? How can they both be put to death and yet not lose a hair on their head? How are we to understand this passage with its troubling prophecies? And how are we to understand our role in what Jesus means by endurance? Let's spend a little time reading the passage more closely. You can look at it in your leaflet if that's helpful. In our text from Luke, there are three distinct time periods alluded to. The first time period is the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. Jesus, who is among other things a prophet, tells his disciples that the temple will be demolished. Not one stone will remain on top of another. If you go to Jerusalem, you will see that that prophecy absolutely take, took place. And it happened in 70 AD, quite catastrophically. We have a very descriptive account of it by a man named Josephus, who was a Jew who was participating in the rebellion that actually led to the Roman siege and destruction. Josephus was captured by the Romans and served in their army, and from that vantage point wrote a detailed narrative. It's quite possible that by the time Luke wrote his gospel, 
the temple had, in fact, been destroyed in fulfillment of that prophecy that Jesus had given. So 70 AD is the first time period alluded to. The second time frame is the time leading up to 70 AD. Jesus mentions that there will be wars, insurrections, earthquakes, and plagues. And Jesus is not so much giving a specific signpost as, you know, when the earthquake happens then. He's more saying all the things that happen in this world will continue happening. Don't be thrown off by them. Just because you follow me does not mean that there will be no troubles in this life. And then the third time frame is the immediate future of the disciples. These men to whom he is speaking will be arrested and persecuted and in many cases put to death for their faith. This reality of Christian life throughout history may seem quite extreme for those of us who have grown up in the United States. But discomfort and danger on account of confessing faith in Jesus are very much a part of what the Bible describes as normal. After saying that they will encounter these hardships, that difficulty will be the norm, Jesus says that the context of their persecution will be an opportunity to bear witness and to endure. I want to pause here with this key concept of the importance of an opportunity to bear witness. Of course, Jesus also said, yeah, don't worry about preparing. You know, you don't have to read your apologetics textbook for this moment. I'm going to give you the words for what you're going to say. Bearing witness means showing that something is true. And in the case of the gospel, it means to attest to what we know about Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and to affirm that this action on God's part has restored us, has brought us into eternal fellowship with God and one another. Bearing witness to that reality is a way we acknowledge God's goodness personally, which is in fact the highest purpose of our life. It is my purpose to tell you that while I was still living in the self-absorbed delusion that my intelligence and comfortable financial situation and good marriage and two children would suffice to keep me happy. But God interrupted that. God interrupted my self-satisfaction and revealed to me that none of these things were in fact the thing that would satisfy my deepest longing. In fact, each of these things, my desire for achievement, money, romance, and even children, were often the source of my greatest fears and anxieties. And by the way, I assume that that may be true for many of you here today. 
these things that we hold up as paramount in our lives, they're insufficient in and of themselves. And they are, when worshipped, just little idols made of clay. But thanks be to God that he sent his son Jesus, who gave his life in exchange for my pride, for my greed, for my ambition exercised at the expense of others, and most importantly, for my marriage and for my children. And thanks be to God that he extended me his hand and said, follow me. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be given unto you. It's popular, even normal, to imagine life at its best as opportunity for individual and collective success. When we read obituaries, the summation of people's lives, they read as records of individual accomplishment, often. I remember back in the late 80s when Richard and I were visiting his grandmother in Philadelphia. She had cut out the obituary of Avril Harriman, Democratic statesman and banker, and gave it to Richard as inspiration for life. (laughs) Not to diminish Mr. Harriman's distinguished career, but reading that obituary would not give a person any indication that God existed, much less that God is good, or that he sent the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, or that he created the splendor of the Alps, or that he loved the world so much that he sent his son, Jesus, who gave himself up to be crucified for the sins of the world, or that on the third day Jesus rose from the dead so that all who turn to him may have forgiveness and everlasting life. None of that could be perceived from the obituary. None of God's glory was borne witness to. Rather, the obituary was bearing witness to Mr. Harriman's many accomplishments, which the writer of that obituary assumed were the purpose of his life. But the Bible presents a very different purpose for our lives. The purpose of our lives is to give glory to God. Jesus sums it up nicely. Let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our purpose is to cause people to give glory to God. It is a relay position. The glory is not supposed to rest upon us. John Newton, the former slave trader who repented and became a priest, wrote this epitaph obituary for his own tomb. I quote, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a trader of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, 
and appointed to preach the faith, he had long labored to destroy. He ministered near 16 years as curate and victor of only in Bucks and 28 as rector of these united parishes. I love that epitaph because it bears witness to God, even at the expense of John Newton. But that, of course, is the way we most honestly bear witness to God, by telling our own story of sins forgiven and brokenness healed through God, by telling of needs met, undeserved blessings poured out. Now, that's that defense Jesus says he'll give us, that story of God's work in our own life. And this brings us to this matter of endurance. What's the root of it? Now, I honestly cannot presume to speak personally of the kind of endurance that we know Christians have lived out under extreme persecution. I cannot even speak personally from having endured great sufferings of quite ordinary afflictions, like cancer or loss of a spouse. But I have heard the witness of those who have endured such things. Of course, there are famous accounts like Bonhoeffer's, but quite frankly, the testimonies that encourage me the most are from ordinary lives, like the ones that happen in these pews. I remember a conversation I had with Virginia Dillo, saint of God, at her kitchen table when she had been ravaged by cancer and was just a few weeks away from her death. She looked at me and she said, Margie, it's going to be all right. When you get to heaven, you just look for Jesus and that's where I'll be. You see, Virginia had given her life to Jesus at age 23 and knew him very well from her earthly walk, despite the fact that she had not received more than a sixth grade formal education She read the Bible through every year. She was a churchgoer. She also, as it turned out, listened regularly on the radio to the man who turned out to me my homiletics professor in seminary. God is funny. Virginia knew Jesus well enough to be confident that he would accomplish all that he had promised. In Hebrews 12, it says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus doesn't promise us a life free of troubles or even free of suffering but he does promise us his own tender companionship along the way and assures us that there is a feast in heaven prepared for you. Charles Simeon, a churchman who endured much unpleasantness, wrote this encouragement to his friend, and I will close with this. My dear brother, We must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I am getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the prickling of my legs. 
let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head, Jesus Christ, has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently as we shall soon be partakers of his victory. Amen.